Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Once again, we thank you uh, for the blessings that you've given to us, that we were able to be open and be able to have our morning worship service this morning. Lord, we thank you for who you are, that you are always faithful to us, that you never leave us, you never let us go. You are always with us every step of the way, through every valley and every mountaintop. Lord, we thank you for your word that reveals to us these truths that we can cling to, that we can hold on to with our very lives. We know that you are the foundation to who we are and everything that we are. So Lord, we gather before you as your children and as brothers and sisters to learn from you, to, he to hear from your word, and to make it a part of our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are on Valentine's Day weekend, you know, the weekend following Valentine's Day. Cherry and I had our little dinner with the kids on, uh, on Friday night. Uh, so this was, this was Valentine's Day weekend for us. Uh, and it doesn't matter if you're in a relationship or not, we like the easy things to like on Valentine's Day, don't we? The flowers, the chocolates, the cheesy cards, and the rom-coms. We like the stories of how people met, the fairy tales of high school sweethearts, and the decades of happy marriage. But there's one very important aspect of love that we either forget or like to forget, and that's the crucial aspect of forgiveness. When one person messes up really badly. I'm talking really badly. I'm not saying they didn't take the clothes out of the dryer or something. I mean really badly. When somebody messes up really badly and the other person is forced to decide whether or not they will forgive them. You won't see a young man taking a girl that he likes to a movie with that plot and trying to yawn and put his arm around the girl they took out on the date. You, you wouldn't see that. That's not a light-hearted movie, but it's a very real part of life. Forgiveness is not just related to, ro to romantic relationships either. It's an integral makeup of any relationship between anyone, regardless of the situation, and especially with brothers and sisters that make up the Church of Jesus Christ. This morning we're going all the way back to the Old Testament. To, take, to the very first book of the Bible, in fact, to take a, a look at a very dramatic human story. In this story, it would have been very, very, very easy for the wronged individual to withhold forgiveness from other people. We're going to see what this person does and what dramatic lesson that gives to us today, no matter what relationship we have with anybody else. This morning may seem like a random message breaking away from the New Testament for today, but then again, perhaps there are many here who need to hear this exact message. Perhaps it's not so random. Today's message will be a little different with only one point. Usually I'm up here clicking through three points, right? But we only have one point today, and, and you'll see how it all flows together as one message. Today, we're fo you might have picked that up on, with a scripture reading. We're focusing on a man named Joseph. There, th this isn't the more famous Joseph in the New Testament, who is Jesus' earthly father. 
This is another man, also named Joseph, who lived thousands of years before Jesus' earthly father was born. And I'm going to give a very quick summary of the story, so we're all on the same page here. It doesn't matter what your knowledge of the Bible is up to this point. We're, going to, we're all going to be on the same page here. But if you're looking for a good and powerful story to read, either this afternoon or tonight, there's no more football on, so now you have something to do. If you're looking for a good and powerful story to read, you can read through the chapters of Genesis 37 through 50. Uh, that huge section of Genesis makes up this whole story. They're devoted to this one guy and this one unfolding story. And we're going to just focus on the part towards the end today. We're not, I'm not preaching through Genesis 37 uh, through 50 today. We're going to get towards the end of the story when it reaches the climax. But before we get there, I want to set up some background. Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham maybe you've heard that name before, was a man that God called out of a pagan worldview and made a promise to that childless and elderly Abraham and his wife Sarah would have a whole nation of people come from them. Miraculously, God made good on that promise and eventually a son named Isaac was born to Abraham and his wife Sarah when Sarah was 90 years old. That's... Uh, 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 definitely a tough age to have a baby at, right? Isaac grew up and had two sons, one named Jacob and the other named Esau. You've heard those names before too, Jacob and Esau. And the deception that occurred between the two of them. Jacob, one of those sons, Jacob, grew up, married two women, and had 12 sons and one daughter by four different women. His two wives and their two handmaids, when they gave their handmaids to Jacob as his concubines in order to have more kids. One of those sons was named Joseph, and his father Jacob loved him more than all his other sons. Jacob even went so far as to make that favoritism very clear when he, and had a colorful tunic made for Joseph with the inference made that while the other brothers were supposed to go out and work hard in the fields, Joseph was only supposed to sit around and look pretty. That's what his clothes indicated to everyone by this colorful tunic that his father had made for him. You can see that Jacob wasn't the greatest father in the world when we read through these descriptions. One day, Joseph had a couple of dreams. And in those dreams, it was interpreted that Joseph would rule over the rest of his family one day. You can see how that would not be met too kindly by the rest of his family, can't you? especially his ten older brothers. Partly out of jealousy and partly out of the desire to make sure those dreams did not come true, Joseph was attacked by his brothers, sold into slavery, and brought down to Egypt. When he arrived in Egypt and was sold to a man, an Egyptian official named Potiphar, however, Joseph worked as hard as he could. God moved in Potiphar's heart, and Joseph was moved up and up. He just kept getting promoted, all the way up to manager of Potiphar's entire household. The Bible says that Potiphar didn't have to worry about anything except what he wanted to eat that day. Joseph took care of everything else in his household. Joseph took care of everything else, and I'm sure Joseph knew that God was blessing him for his hard work as he saw himself getting promoted and, and promoted. Until that fateful day when Potiphar's wife 
tried to force Joseph to sleep with her. You, you thought this type of thing only happened in today's day and age. This happened thousands and thousands of years ago. Potiphar's wife tried to force Joseph to sleep with her, and he refused because he knew it wouldn't be pleasing to God. Angry with Joseph, Potiphar's wife claimed that Joseph had tried to force himself on her and got Joseph thrown into prison for something he hadn't even done. Joseph spent at least three years in prison for a crime he did not commit, probably longer. During that time, he served two other people in Pharaoh's close circle, the king of Egypt, his royal, the, the king of Egypt's royal butler and baker. These two guys had dreams which Joseph, through God's power, interpreted, and both of those dreams had come true perfectly. The baker was hanged as per his dream, and the butler was given his position back. Joseph wanted the butler to mention him to Pharaoh, you know, put in a good word for me, I'm still in prison here, in order to hopefully get him to be released. But guess what happened? The butler forgot all about Joseph in prison, and there Joseph remained. Finally, Pharaoh was given two dreams by God, both about the same thing. And the butler remembered, oh yeah, that Joseph had interpreted his and the baker's dreams perfectly. And he told that, that about to, to Pharaoh. Joseph was brought before Pharaoh, interpreted his dreams as God explained them. And this is what the dreams meant. There were going to be seven years of, of abundance, followed by seven years of famine that would be so bad that everyone would forget about the seven years of abundance before that. Think about a famine so bad that you forget, completely forget about the seven years of abundance before that. Filled with God's boldness, Joseph then gave Pharaoh some advice that Pharaoh should tax everyone one-fifth of the grain that they would grow for the next seven years of abundance and store it to ration out over the next years of famine, seven years of famine after that. Pharaoh was so impressed that he said, well, why don't you do it? That he made Joseph governor, listen, governor over all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. Joseph was sold into slavery entered Egypt as a slave, and now he's the governor over the entire land of Egypt. And to make that plan a reality, Joseph went from slave to prisoner to governor, second only to Pharaoh. But that process, if you look back and you add everything up, that whole process from slave to prisoner to governor took 13 years to come to pass. 13 years. That was 13 years of waiting. 13 years of confusion, of heartache, of never knowing if he would ever see his beloved father again. It would be another seven years after that of being the governor over Egypt and collecting and storing grain during those years of abundance. Joseph ended collecting so much grain that the Bible says he lost count. That's a lot of grain. So we're talking about 20 years have passed since Joseph last saw his father, since he was ripped away from his family and sold into slavery. 20 years. And all of that 
because his very own brothers did such a treacherous thing. This is what I want us to see. Those 20 years have been a process for Joseph. He has wrestled with God over those 20 years. His faith has been shaken and built back up. He has stared hopelessness in the face and has kept going in spite of it. He has struggled with forgiveness. And on top of that, these 20 years are God setting up for what happens next. After 20 years, guess who shows up in Egypt to buy grain from who they don't know is Joseph? His brothers. After 20 years, they show up to Egypt to buy grain because that famine has extended into their land as well. Those brothers that sold Joseph into slavery. Through a plan, Joseph is able to ensure that they return a second time with his full-blooded younger brother, Benjamin, this time. After seeing the change in heart in his brothers collectively, and especially in his brother Judah, who was the mastermind behind his enslavement, this is what happens. Genesis chapter 45, we're going to be in verses 1 through 2. If you, didn't, if, you, if you brought your Bible with you, turn to Genesis 45. First book of the Bible. Just keep flipping until you get to chapter 45. If you didn't, that's perfectly fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to Genesis 45. We're going to be in the first two verses of that chapter. And we read, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, Have everyone go out for me. So there was no man with him, when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Words can sort of capture feelings of a moment, sort of. But use your imagination a little bit. This scene is so chaotic that words cannot fully capture everything happening at once. As soon as Judah is done giving his impassioned plea for Joseph to punish him instead of Benjamin, thus showing a 180 degree from the man whose idea it was to sell Joseph into slavery, Joseph cannot hold himself any longer. He cannot hold it back any longer. Joseph is totally unprepared for what, jo what Judah says. He had no idea that was going to happen let alone prepare himself for it. Say, okay, if Judah says this certain thing, I know what I'm going to do. He had no idea this was going to happen, so he was totally unprepared for it. So as the tears start welling up in Joseph's eyes, he commands all of his Egyptian attendants to leave the room. Now notice this is not so they don't know that he will soon start sobbing, because we read in verse 2 that all of Egypt finds out anyways that he was sobbing in that room. As has been noted, this is goodness on Joseph's heart, on Joseph's part, why he tells all the Egyptians to leave. He knows that the terrible sin his brothers committed against him is sure to come out now. There's no way it's not going to come out. And he doesn't want all of Egypt to know his brothers' previous sins. It's between him and them. Nobody else needed to know about it. Doubtless, as Joseph is sobbing, he wants to explain to his brothers why 
He's sobbing. So as he's sobbing, he blurts out the beginning part of verse 3. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? This question is symbolic. If you go back and look throughout this story, when the brothers show up the first time, he asks them, is your father still alive? And then again, is your father still alive? And now, he only phrases it as, is my father still alive? As if to say, this is why I've been asking you that all this time. I wanted to know if my father was still alive. Second part of verse 3. But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. I think I would be the same exact way at that point. This whole experience is chaotic. The brothers have only seen Joseph this entire time as this ornery and odd governor that keeps giving them all these weird things to do and as governor over Egypt. They have no idea why he's been giving them so much attention out of anybody else who's been a foreigner that has come to Egypt to buy grain and accusing them as spies. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you can go back and read that. And asking them about their family, asking them that odd question, is your father still alive? Why would that matter to a bunch of foreigners in Egypt? on insisting on them bringing their youngest brother back with them. And then this governor goes so far as to invite these foreigners over to his house for lunch. And they still have no idea why this Egyptian governor would do all of these things. We can look at this experience with our American dream rags to riches eyes and think it's weird that his brothers didn't even think that the governor could have been Joseph, didn't have an inkling of it. But to them, in this time period and in this culture, it would have been thought completely impossible for anything like that to happen. See, with our American eyes, we think, of course, anything like that is possible. If you put your mind to it, anything can happen, right? But in that time period in culture, it was completely impossible for this type of thing to happen. Beyond that, God also had something, had to have something to do with it because everything had to be lined up for Joseph to see how much change occurred in his brother's hearts. And now it's time for Joseph to reveal himself and it's a complete shock to his brothers. Judah had been the one near tears standing before this stone-faced governor. But now the governor has collapsed in tears, uh, sobbing uncontrollably. And just as his brothers are about to turn to one another and wonder what's going on, the governor ex exclaims, I'm Joseph. I'm the one you sold into slavery. <laughs> wow. Talk about a complete shock. That was the last thing you would expect to happen. Words cannot begin to describe how stunned these men were. They were convinced that Joseph was most likely dead. But that belief is shattered when Joseph is standing right before them and says, I'm Joseph. I'm sure they jumped right to, to the conclusion that he was going to get back at them somehow. That would be what any of us would assume. Oh, great, now he's going to get back at us. That's why what happens next 
is Joseph trying to calm his brother's fears in verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they come closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you, whom you sold into Egypt. Joseph reiterates to his brothers who he really is. See, there were only 12 people on the face of the earth who would know and understand what Joseph was, was, was saying, and they were all standing in the same room that day. Only 12 people on the face of the earth would understand what was going on, and they were all standing in the same room that day. Only Joseph would know that the other men in the same room with him had sold him to be a slave in Egypt, and that is what seals it for his brothers. Put yourself in Joseph's brother's shoes. Use your imagination for a little bit. This man that you thought was just the governor, is wailing like a maniac, was one you were terrified of when you first came to Egypt to buy food. And that was just when he was just the governor of Egypt in your mind. You were still terrified of him. One you were terrified of when he commanded you to bring Benjamin all the way from Canaan, all the way to Egypt, when Jacob was so scared to allow it. One you were terrified of when he threatened to put Benjamin in slavery for allegedly stealing his silver chalice. Again, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and look it up. Now this man is collapsing in tears before your very eyes. You're terrified, but more terrified because this man could do anything he wanted to you at this moment. And it seems like he's losing his mind. If you were one of Joseph's brothers at this point, no doubt you'd be panicking out of your mind and thinking, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, he's going to kill us now. He's going to kill us right now. Out of all the things Joseph could have said, he had every right to say something like, yeah, see what goes around comes around, or what have you got to say for yourselves? What now? But here is Joseph's mind-blowing response. And this is the key verse I want to put our focus on today. Verse 5. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Whew. I was not expecting that to come out of Joseph's mouth. That probably wouldn't be the first thing out of my mouth. Joseph knew that beyond the betrayal, beyond knowing his brothers were ignoring his cries for help as they were contemplating selling him into slavery, he could hear them. Beyond that difficult journey down to Egypt as a slave, having no idea what was going to happen to him, beyond the hopelessness experienced as he was being sold to Potiphar and had no idea what lay ahead, and beyond being thrown into prison for years for a crime he did not commit, Joseph knew that God used all of those horrific experiences to save not only thousands of people, but the very people who had betrayed him. That's powerful, isn't it? That's why Joseph doesn't even want his brothers to feel angry with themselves for what they did. Because ultimately, everything that happened didn't even have anything to do with any of them, personally. Joseph included. 
Joseph saw that his life was not his own, that it was God's to accomplish God's purpose and not his own. Joseph would have never made it to Egypt and would have never made it to a position of power had he not been sold into slavery in the first place. The sovereignty of God even opened up Joseph's eyes to another truth, that it was God, not his brothers, who allowed him to be sold into slavery, because God could have stopped it. And because of that, there was nothing for Joseph to forgive in regards to his brothers. That's incredible. This lesson teaches us a great truth today. If we really believe in God's sovereignty, then forgiveness is a little bit easier to process, isn't it? Offenses done, whether on purpose or not even realized, have nothing to do with us. Now, none of, now some of us have had horrific things done to us by somebody else. And I am not saying at all that forgiveness will come easy in those circumstances. But what Scripture does teach us is that we, that should always be something on the table. Now bear with me. Some of you are, are being tempted to tune me out at this point. Bear with me. One of Jesus' disciples named Peter once asked Jesus a question. We read in Matthew 18. Then Peter came up to him. verse up there. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And then we read, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to, let me hear it, seventy times seven. Notice what's missing there. What's missing in Jesus' instruction to his disciple Peter. What's missing is any sort of qualification for forgiveness. Jesus doesn't give levels of sin when forgiveness is possible and other levels of sin when forgiveness is not possible. It's a blanket statement. Why? How can Jesus say that? Well, Jesus immediately follows up that statement with a story, as Jesus often does. In this story, there was a king who forgave one of his subjects a debt that was owed to him. Originally, that man was very grateful, but then went and found someone who held something against him and demanded recompense from that guy. When the king found out, he punished the first man severely, and for good reason. Here's how Jesus ended that story. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Again, that's a very powerful statement for the Son of God to make. Why? Why was, this, why was this how Jesus ended that story? Here's why. Our Heavenly Father forgave us when we grieved Him through our sin. And as believers in Jesus, the Bible says that He is faithful to forgive us every time we confess our sin to God every single time. If God forgives us every single time we grieve Him, why should we hold anything against anyone else? 
In fact, as Jesus points out, if we do harbor unforgiveness towards anyone, then God will hold us accountable for that unforgiveness. That's easy to get through us when, we're, when what we're holding against someone else is really just connected to our pride being wounded or our selfishness or our self-centeredness. We can process this pretty easily that way. Someone says or does something we don't agree with or rubs us the wrong way or insults us. In those cases, as Jesus says in that story, we need to let those things go and get over ourselves. If God does not hold our sin against us and has forgiven forgiven us of those sins, it's an affront to him to hold offense towards a fellow human being, especially a brother or sister in Christ. If not, we'll have to contend with our Heavenly Father, and believe me, that's not someone you want to contend with. That's not someone you want to be looking at discipline from. Now, like I said, a lot of times, the trouble is not just somebody saying something to us that rubs us the wrong way or insults us. Sometimes there are really deep, hurts, really traumatic experiences that we suffer at the hands of a fellow human being. To those situations, I'm not in any way telling you to just get over it and forgive that person. Sometimes it's really not that easy. But the same truth we saw today with the story of Joseph still applies. Joseph was able to forgive the atrocities of his brothers because of what he grew to realize about God's control over his life. If Joseph really believed in God's kingship and control over his life, then he also had to believe that God was still in control over the painful times too. That God did not take a break and go somewhere else at that point. And if God was still in control in the times of pain, then it really had nothing to do with his brothers. Yes, they were the agents of that pain, but it was really God who was in control at all times, even that extremely painful time. Instead of that being a source of anger and resentment towards God, however, it's a source of peace. As we've talked about, trials are a way for God to grow us. They're a way for us to take away anything else we put our trust in and reveal to us that the only foundation we can have is God. We can and must have is God. Let us never underestimate the empowerment that can also come from those traumatic experiences. And here's what I mean. When Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthian church, he said this, He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's a very empowering statement, isn't it? You know what that says to us? It says that this world is a mess. Things will happen to us, sometimes traumatic things, because this world is full of sin. 
Does that mean that God is not always in control or that he doesn't care about us? Of course not. What does it mean? It means that God is always in the business of redemption in spite of the curse of sin in this world. That traumatic experience may have happened to you so that you could receive the comfort that only God can give so that you can be a bearer of that same comfort to someone else who goes through a similar experience. You wouldn't be able to share that deep love of God with that other person in a truly understanding way if you had not gone through that entire process yourself at one point. That realization can be the first step towards forgiving the person who did that awful, horrific thing to you. It's the realization that Joseph had that gave him the power to forgive his brothers. God's plan is always greater than any selfishness or trauma someone directs at us. God's plan is always greater. God's redemption and healing are always more powerful than any pain inflicted on us. God's love for you is always more powerful than anyone's terrible act towards you. Surrendering to that powerful love, redemption, and healing from God is the first step towards forgiving that person. And as forgiveness starts to wash over you, the grip that darkness has over you will start to be released. You will no longer be held down under that. God will raise you up over that and give you victory over that. That victory will culminate in one day giving forgiveness towards that person, whether or not they deserve it. It doesn't matter if they deserve it or not, because we know who we are as children of the Most High King. And it will be him giving us the power to extend that forgiveness. So let that revelation be a source of power for you today. God has forgiven us of all we've done in transgression against him. In general, that gives us the strength to let go and forgive anyone who says or does something offensive to us. For those extremely painful hurts, God is still in control and he still has a loving plan for your life. In time, that will give us the strength to surrender and forgive that person for what they did to us. God will use every painful time in our lives to give us opportunities to share the love, comfort, and strength he gave to us in those dark times with someone who goes through a similar experience. That brings redemption to those dark times. That uses those dark times. And it empowers us to know that those dark times do not define who we are. We are defined by Jesus. We are defined as children of the Most High King. Those dark times do not have any power over us. Only God's kingship, love, healing, and forgiveness have power over us. And ultimately, that power is what gives us freedom from the chains 
of those dark times. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this powerful message found in the first book of your word. Lord, there are some here who have to extend forgiveness to somebody who rubbed them the wrong way, said something offensive to them, did something offensive to them. Lord, I pray that you would give them the power to let that go and, rec and, and, and receive the power to forgive that person and let the grip of what happened not have any control over them. Lord, I pray for those who are sitting here and those who will be watching this in the future who really struggle with really traumatic experiences in their lives, things that shaped them to be the people that they are today. Lord, I pray that you would speak to their hearts through your, through your Holy Spirit, that you would remind them of the words we talked about today, the words in your word that can give them freedom from those experiences, that can raise them up in victory over those experiences and give them the power and the freedom to forgive from those experiences. Lord, we thank you for forgiving us, for loving us, so that we know how to forgive and to love. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.